We're in Deuteronomy tonight. I like the songs that we sang. Uh, we're going to be touching on some of those themes. We sang an old song, uh, and by old I mean from my early teens, or maybe a little before, that Conqueror and Conquering song. Uh, I remember being at our, when we used to meet over at Appian Way, uh, we would sing that song, and it was awesome. Um, and th- all those words are straight out of Revelation. And we just read through Revelation together. And it's always surprising how, uh, how graphic it is when Jesus comes back. I mean, it's, it's no nonsense. He is coming to, in one place it says, destroy those who destroy the earth. God is jealous over his creation, the place that he's created to, to dwell with his, his people. And he is going to rid the earth of everything that causes problems in the earth. Um, and thanks be to God that he has offered us a way uh, of escape from his wrath, that we, can, um, that we can know him, and that we can stop being becoming destroyers of the earth and start taking dominion and being a blessing to the earth. And so that's what, that's what we're here tonight for, uh, to see more of this God's purpose for our lives. He told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to multiply you. And I'm going to make you to be a blessing in the earth. And that's always what he's wanted from his people. Deuteronomy uh, is nothing if not a testimony to that truth. So what I'm going to do is uh, just briefly recap. Right, Billy has been talking about the the three primary sections in Deuteronomy. The first one, chapters 1 through 4, is Jesus looking... Not Jesus. Well, maybe the Spirit of Jesus through Moses or whatever. Um, Moses, looking back and recounting the journey up to that point uh, and, and pointing out key episodes in Israel's journey through the wilderness that tell them something about themselves and tell them something about God that they need to keep in remembrance as they enter into the land. Um, He's looking back and he's saying, you guys need to remember this this and this, and carry that with you as you go. Because I was teaching you crucial lessons about walking with me, and you need to bear those in mind. The middle section of Deuteronomy is a restatement and sort of a filling out of the law of God. And the key key words in the middle sermon in Deuteronomy are hear, remember, be careful to observe, and all these kinds of, of words. And the third, the last section is, is primarily preparation to now go into the land. Right, the book of, book of Deuteronomy, it's a book about being on the, on the verge of a new thing. We've spent 40 years in the wilderness, and now we're getting ready to go in and take the land. So that's where, that's where this book comes, and that's where the words, and that's the context of these words in, in this book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to talk about possessing the land tonight, and um, I'm going to pull out, <laughs> there's a direct line from Ben, he's making faces at Theo over there, and it just looks like he's making faces right at me. His, 
<laughs> oh, he was making faces. Okay. Kids are fun. Um, we're going to look at eight principles of possessing the land from Deuteronomy. I'm not necessarily. I'm going to skip around a little bit through Deuteronomy, so I'm not just staying in the last uh, four or five chapters uh, necessarily, because sprinkled all throughout the book are principles uh, and and bits of wisdom that Moses is laying out for for going in to possess the land. So I just have eight of these principles. And they're pretty simple. You know, this is nothing groundbreaking. But as Billy has said, I think all of us can look ahead in our lives and see some sort of new phase on the, on the horizon. Um, there's something coming up, uh, whether it's a, a new job, whether it's a four years of school, um, a new child, or two new, <laughs> two new children. Um, maybe it's you're, you're getting to the point where you're becoming empty nesters. There's a new phase of life. Um, and so I think it's safe to say that, that almost everyone in here has a phase of life that they're entering into that they need to apply these principles to. So the application tonight is going to be different for each person. It's up to you to know where God has you and where he's taking you. So, the first principle of possessing the land. Uh, this is number one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. In chapter 8, starting in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. And then if you go to the end of the book in chapter 31, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Moses said this to Joshua, but he said it in the hearing of all of Israel. They need to know that the Lord was with them. The Lord is with them. If the book of Deuteronomy tells us anything, it tells us that the Lord is closely involved in the lives of His people. That He walks with His people. Even in the rebellion, He's there and He's teaching. And He's rebuking and He's punishing. But He's there. And He does not forsake His people. The looking back in Deuteronomy shows that God's clearly in control. And the looking ahead promises the same. The Lord is there. He is with you. And He will not forsake you. Amen? Number two, the land is good. The land is good. Go back to chapter 8. Verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. 
a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. The goodness of the land is found in that it supports the flourishing and the kind of abundant life that God has always intended for his people. It calls to our memory the pictures of of Eden that we have before the fall, where everything is just springing up, and it's it's well-watered, and it's it's plenteous, and there's abundance and flourishing and teeming and swarming. Abundant life is what God intends. God never intended for man to, to scrape out in existence, and to just survive on the earth. He intended man to thrive and to multiply. And that has always been the purpose of God for mankind, to thrive and to multiply. is life. Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it in abundance. So the land where we're going is good. It is good, and we can never forget that, that God calls us into a good and abundant life. Number three, the enemy is real. The enemy is real. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations, listen to this, more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you must defeat them. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. Things haven't changed from Numbers 14. The giants are still there. The report that the spies brought back, back in Numbers 14, was an accurate report. The opposition in the land is hostile, and it's overwhelming. This is not an empty shell of land, but like a vacant hotel room that's just ready for you to check in with the chocolate on the pillow, right? The land is currently occupied by an enemy that needs to be driven out and does not want to go has no intention of leaving anytime soon. Okay, so where we're going is good, but it's occupied. And it needs to be taken by force. Number four, idolatry is no joke. But in a way, it really is. (laughs) And I'll explain what I mean by that. Idolatry is no joke, but in a way, it really is. In chapter 4, we get a major warning against idolatry. Spells out why idolatry is to be avoided. And the climax comes in verse 39. Verse 
Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is no other. In the Shema, in in chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that doesn't just mean we are monotheists. (laughs) It means He's it. He is supreme. Yahweh is the only real God. He's distinct. He's unique. No one can do the things that he has done. And this is the major argument against idolatry. His commandments alone are worthy of obedience. God's perennial accusation of the idols of the land is that they can't do anything. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. Can they save you from your enemies? No. Verse 19 of of chapter 4. Here we get a little more glimpse into what 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 is idolatry? What why is it so why is it so bad? And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Now listen to this. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. These are the things I'm putting under your dominion. And you want to turn and worship them. It's a perversion of creation. Idolatry is a perversion of the call to take dominion and to shape the world according to the will of the Creator Himself. We have two pictures. um, Well, we have more, but I want to call our attention to two pictures of the way idolatry encroaches upon the people of God, the way it it weasels its way in. And the first is through when, when the people of God begin to sort of flirt with the world. Um, everyone knows we can't escape the world totally. We can't bar ourselves out of the world, and nor, nor is that the will of God. But when we begin to sort of welcome the world into our lives and consort with the world, that's when idolatry becomes a danger. This is what happened back in Peor. Um, if you want to turn to, if you want to go back to numbers real quick, chapter 25, I think. Yeah, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. This began as sort of a ice cream social. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in biblical language, so it sounds stark to us. But really, it's a bunch of young ladies inviting these gullible young men Hey, come to come to sacrifice with me. Which is a cultural thing to do. And before long, Israel finds itself yoked to a pagan deity. 
So this is one way that idolatry gets its way into the, into the people of God. It's through this flirtatious association with the world. And then if you go to chapter 31 again in Deuteronomy, there's another way that, that idolatry can find its way into the hearts of the people of God. 31, verse 19. Now therefore write this song to teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land, which is good, flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. So the other way idolatry finds its way into the people of God's hearts is when there's wealth and passivity and overindulgence, and we begin to, because of the abundance of the land, because of the goodness of the land, we lose our sense of desperation for the Lord. And we lose our zeal for the commandments of God and our zeal for the oneness and uniqueness of God. And idolatry, before long, uh, begins to to proliferate. So, rationally considered, idolatry is is laughable. It's stupid. It's worshiping. And and Isaiah, it's great. He mocks idolatry. I think it's in in chapter uh, 40 or so. He, He just mocks idolatry. He goes, listen, this guy goes out to the woods. He cuts down a tree, cuts it in half, and then half of it he uses to build a fire. And he cooks his food with the fire. And the other half, he bows down and worships. How absurd is that? On one hand, you have, yes, this is taking dominion. We're being productive. We're being uh, industrious with creation. And this side... Oh, piece of wood, I worship you. It makes no sense. It's absurd. It's a joke. But it's no joke. Because it it can so easily encroach. And so where we're going, in the land that we're going to, there is idolatry, and it wants to get in to the people of God. It wants to worm its way in, either through flirtation or through just this passive indulgence. Apathy, fatness. So that's number four. Number five, the curse is really, really bad. The curse is really, really bad. As much of a blessing as the land is, as much abundance as is there, all of the blessings that come through obedience, that much and more is the horror of disobedience. Chapter 28 spells out the blessings for obedience. And these are all future-based. If you obey, then this. If you disobey... And I'll just point out, the blessings run from verse 1 to 14. 
If you obey, this will happen. The curses run from verse 15 to verse 68. It's really bad. I mean, just when you think all the badness has been spelled out, you got half a chapter left. So I won't go through there, but if you want to, if you want to get a picture of the curse of leaving God, of letting idolatry come in, read that. It's a warning to us. The other side of that, number six, obedience is everything. Obedience is everything. Deuteronomy spells out for us in no uncertain terms what we usually take to be a New Testament truth. And that is that really the only true expression of our love for God is our obedience to His commands. Our intentions, good though they may be, are not real proof of our love for God. Our sense of Guilt when we do wrong, it's not ultimately proof of our love for God. Real proof is whether we obey His commands or not. If you love me, and it's spelled out very clearly in the Gospel of John and in John's epistles, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Who is it that loves God? The one who keeps His commands. And this, this, is, this echoes all through Scripture, but it, particularly in Deuteronomy. As we've said, love is, one of the, is surprisingly one of the words that you hear a lot in Deuteronomy. Chapter 29 is where, is where we can see something here. This is an interesting verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's a lot of things we don't know about God. We might not even understand all of His commands. But it says... The things that are revealed belong to us. If there's something we know is the will of God, we need to do it. Whether we understand it or not. If we know it, thou shalt not murder, or whatever. You need to do that. You don't need to understand the secret things, as it says. God, God knows. He has his reasons. He's the creator. Obedience is everything. That's okay. We'll grow in the knowledge of the things behind all the commandments of God. But what we need to give ourselves to is the act of obedience. Whatever it is. Submitting ourselves and obeying is everything. This is why we do child training the way that we do. The first thing they need to learn is obedience. Number seven, victory is the Lord's. And there's a twofold truth here. 
principle in, in possessing the land. The first one is that only God, only God, can drive out the kinds of enemies that we're going to encounter. We can't defeat the enemy. We cannot displace the enemy on our own. But the second truth is that God can drive out any enemy we encounter. Any opposition we encounter in taking the land, God has the victory. So it's only him, but it's him in truth and against any enemy. Does that make sense? Amen. Okay, number eight. You can do it. <laughs> you can do it. Right? At the risk of, of that's straight out of the straight out of scripture. At the risk of sounding like some sort of motivational speaker. You can do it. Chapter thirty, verse eleven. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? No, it's already been said. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God is a good Father, and He does not command us to do, He does not command His children to do anything that we cannot do. Okay? That's another key of, of, of parenting. You expect obedience from the things that you know your child can do. Right? I mean, I don't expect my five-year-old son to understand things that a 15-year-old should understand. I don't expect him to mow the lawn. The grass is long. Why didn't you mow the lawn? Because he can't, he can't do that. Right? But he can do certain things that I know he can do. And I expect obedience there. So God never God knows us, right? And he never commands us to do anything that he that he doesn't know, that he knows that we can't do. Or that he's not committed to supernaturally aid us to do. Okay, that's, that's another important thing. This is an aspect of God's grace that we need to receive into our lives. And that is sometimes you can't, <laughs> but you're to obey, and then here comes supernatural aid through the channel of your obedience. Does that make sense? So like David against Goliath, or Jonathan and the armor-bearer against all that army, or any of the other victories in Scripture that we see that had to have been divine intervention. Somebody obeyed and allowed the Lord to bring that to pass. Does that make sense? How about being crucified as an act of obedience? and then being raised because of his obedience. So again, 
you can do it. And even if you can't, you can't. <laughs> because even if it kills you, as we know, God can raise you. So the, the big case in point for us is that Jesus rose from the dead. And that puts to death every single voice that says, but I can't. I just can't. You can do it. So let me just draw a little bit of application, um, and then we'll be done. For us, in this age, and in our where we are in our church, possessing the land means basically bringing the kingdom of God and the will of God into every corner of our lives. Whatever corner that we've been assigned, it's bringing the kingdom of God and the will of God and the commandments of God to bear in that corner. Um, and this happens, I'd say, primarily through relationship. And so possessing the land means knowing how to love the people around you and giving yourself to that. That is possessing the land. And when you do that, when you give yourself to that, all hell comes against you, but if you persevere, you enter a land that is good and abundant and full of life and thriving. And anyone here, and I know that there are a lot of people here, can testify to when you press through the opposition and the, the brokenness that is required to bring about unity in relationship, you experience a kind of life that you can't even really explain to people, that the world doesn't even really know is possible. And it's unity by the Holy Spirit. That is the good land. And we're going there with each other. Amen? We're going there as husbands and wives. We're going there as fathers and mothers and children. We're going there as a congregation. We are going there. Another aspect is, I would say, we can think in terms of our profession. And by that I mean what you spend the bulk of your day doing. So that's your job, that's your classes, um, that's the home. If you're a wife at home, possess that land. That is the land that God is giving you, and it's a good land. And he has equipped you and called you and sent you to obey his commands, drive out the enemies, and experience the abundant life of God in your job, in your classes, in the home, wherever it is. And then finally, God has called us to possess the land geographically. He has called us to this city. We all live in a neighborhood. God has placed us there. And we are to be the agents and the channels of God's blessing into those places. Our neighborhood, our city, our state, and this country. God is, is giving us an inheritance and a possession. So all the principles that I, that I spelled out apply in those areas. So if you think through your relationships, just think of one relationship that you, need, that you need to actively work on 
Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's with a friend. The Lord is with you. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. The land is good. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded blessing and life forevermore. The enemy is real. Right? Satan is more crafty than any other creature. He comes to to divide husband from wife. To bring accusation and blame. There are all sorts of idolatrous forms of relationship. Relationship based in me worshiping you for what you give me. The curse is bad. A bad relationship hurts. And it sours all the rest of life. Obedience is everything. If you just give yourself in trust and in faith to do the things you know you need to do at whatever cost to yourself, you will find that God will work on your behalf and that relationship will reflect God. Victory is the Lord's. There is no relational conflict too big for God to resolve. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. By the cross, he's broken down every dividing wall. There is nothing that God cannot overcome between two people. Nothing. And you can do it. You can do it. Now, I'm not so ignorant or naive to think that this can all happen tomorrow. Relationships take time. Both people need to pursue this. right? So you can't make someone else see it the same way. But you, do you have a vision of possessing the land? That you are sent, you are called. You're not a victim of anything. You're an agent of blessing. And you can endure anything to bring the life and the abundance and the blessing of God into the earth. I walked through those with relationship. You can walk through those in the same way with your job. You can walk through it the same way with your studies. You can walk through it the same way with life at home. God is sending us out to possess the land. And we're going to head into Joshua. And we're just going to see that this truth echoes all through the rest of the story. It's a good land. The enemy is real. Uh, but, but, but the victory is the Lord's and he is with us. Amen?